Welcome to the All Things Performance Podcast, where our goal is to stay hungry, to get better, and to move the meter. My name is Josiah Igano, and whether you're looking to improve physically, to get fed spiritually, or to challenge yourself mentally, we're digging deep to find those gems, and we're going to find them. Let's go. Let's, let's, let's go. Hope everybody's doing well. Today's podcast is with a good friend, Joshua Medcalf, and you've likely heard of Joshua Medcalf. If not, you've probably read one of his books, passed by one of his several books at your local bookstore, uh, if you go to those things anymore. And of these books, Chop Wood, Carry Water is his most renowned work. And not only uh, is Joshua a nationally acclaimed author, but he works with several high performers from different sectors. You know, that includes athletics, business, education. Uh, He's left his thumbprint in many different cosmos, if you will. And, you know, this particular conversation that we have today is action packed. It's riveting and it's not what you might expect. And just a word to the wise here, uh, listener and viewer discretion is advised. So just want to make sure I throw that out there. We speak on a range of subject matter, including being the performer in the arena. We talk about mental health talk about mental toughness you know we talk about what high performance truly looks like and the essence of life yeah we talk about that all of that and more and then some this podcast is you know i'm not going to guarantee that it's going to change you but it will challenge you and so without further ado we get right into today's conversation all right ladies and gentlemen we have a special one here today i am joined uh, by joshua medcalf many of you know him uh, from his work uh, chop wood, carry water, and, and the other books that he's read, and uh, this is going to be awesome. I can just feel it. I can feel it. Joshua, how you doing today, man? I'm so good, buddy. Great to see you again. Great to be on here with you. Awesome, man. Awesome. Hey, so real quick, talk to us real quick about for those who are watching this podcast. Talk to us about your background, there, man. Ooh, that's a, uh, that's a, that's a the, profound the, piece of art, man. The, oh, this background. Yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So um, I'll actually read something um, that's, that I kind of wrote about this that had been kind of on my heart lately, and I kind of had this vision to create something like this. So it's a Basquiat wallpaper, and then um, and then I wrote what I wrote, which is make shit on top of it. Originally, I think you can kind of see in this corner, that was, uh, I used to make those as a kid and growing up in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a lot of people told me that's not art oh, and wow. that's just, that's just scribbles. And, um, and now today I see stuff just like that that sells for tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, millions mm-hmm. of dollars. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of a, stuck in a place where some people maybe didn't understand art or they didn't understand the future of art or they um, were kind of small-minded. And so, uh, yeah, so I, I, I wrote this. As we become adults, we sink deeper and deeper into a prism of perfectionism. We believe the lie that we aren't artists, that the only the chosen few can create, that something has to be perfect, that we have to color inside the lines, that we have to accept what is offered and that we can't make anything better. I love the phrase, make shit because it gives me permission to make things that suck. Because if I make enough shitty things, eventually I'll get better and make something awesome. (laughs) It's wild to me that even though I sell almost a million dollars of art every year, I still have trouble believing I'm a real artist. I loved making art as a kid, but I couldn't draw traditionally. So I developed this deep belief that I wasn't an artist. 
Every kid believes that they are an artist, and they are because they make shit all the time, often at the disgust and frustration of the adults. The way to ensure that you never make anything awesome is to never make anything at all. My most famous piece of art, Chop Wood Carry Water, is far from my best work, but my job isn't to be judge and jury on my own work. My job is to do the work. My job is to make shit and hit publish. It's your job as well, but no one hires you for this job. You have to choose to get in the arena. There's a seat in the locker room, a jersey with your name on it, but you have to be courageous enough to choose yourself, get in the arena, and do the work. In a world full of critics, be a creator. We get one life, one at bat. Make it count. Wow, man. So that's the ethos behind that. Wow, that is powerful. I, I, you know what, man? I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I, I was a little convicted as you were reading that because, you know, our kids, man, they make stuff all the time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You probably have little family members, nieces, nephews, yeah. you know, you know, they make stuff all the time. And it's just like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But they put their heart into it. It's like the yeah. greatest thing, man. I, I, yeah. I love that. I love that, man. I think that that's very powerful. Um, is this something that has been welling up in you for years? Is this something that is, it's a recent revelation? Because when you start talking about, you know, the man in the arena, the woman in, in the arena, that's where it, that's where it is. You know, many people have heard that. Uh, I think it's Theodore Roosevelt quote, Brene, uh, uh, Brene Brown, I believe, repopularized it again. Like very greatly. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want you to just, you know, is this something? Is, is this a new development in your in your personal life, or is this something that's been welling up for a long time? Um, I think it's something that's been welling up for a long time. I, you know, I, I've had that desire to make stuff. I, I believe that that I am an artist, but there was this long period of time where that was really, really challenging because until you kind of break out it's it's tough with art uh you know sports sports there's this really kind of linear trajectory of like you start out whenever you're young you you play games like you know like there's there's a lot of of context and structure mm -hmm. and and art that usually isn't the case and so oftentimes, I mean, whether it's a rapper or whether it's somebody that draws or somebody that builds stuff or somebody that writes stuff, you, you kind of hear the same story a lot that in the beginning, most people told them, hey man, that sucks. You should put this away. This is ridiculous. Um, and there's a guy named Sir Ken Robinson that kind of uh, put out a book that talks about the research where uh, you know, up until about seven years old, if you ask kids in, in a classroom, how many of you believe that you're artists, every single kid's hand shoots up. Wow. And then by the time they get to about fifth or sixth grade, they ask that same question and only one or two kids will put their hands up. Yeah. And usually that's because it's somewhere along the line, somebody came in and uh, they, they offered them something that they had made and somebody comes along you know and, and, and like you, you you're like look, look what I did look what I made look, yeah. look, look at this and then somebody that you respect comes along and just goes boom yeah man yeah and says that's that's terrible you suck mm. and and then that internalizes and then all of a sudden we stop creating and we and we start to believe this lie that our job is to consume our job is to just be a cog in the wheel 
and it's not to live out the life that God actually created us to live and to be. That's powerful. That's powerful. You know, you alluded to it earlier, and I'm going to uh, just read. This is this is your Twitter handle, and I think it's powerful <laughs> because you said you said, "Hey, my job is to create the work and hit publish. Yeah. That's my job." And I want to talk about the elephant in the room, chop wood, carry water. You have famously stated that I wrote seven books. Chop wood is my least favorite. So naturally, it's the one that's the best selling. It's one of the ones that's the best selling books in the world, right? This book that you've created, this tremendous book, and if the listeners out there today, if you have not read this book, I highly recommend that you go and purchase it. Um, I have actually had to, I think... I don't, I, don't, I don't know whether I had to reach out to you or Amazon. There was a point where this thing was sold out, dude. I had athletes hitting me up, Yo, Joe, I need, one of those, I need one of those books, you know? And it's become one of your famous works. Athletes worldwide have read it. Parents worldwide have read this book, and it's your least favorite book. I actually have a player right now in Japan who has my copy. He goes, hey, Joe. <laughs> He was like, yo, Joe. I said, what? He goes, hey, I got that book you gave me. And I'm like, yo. And he's showing me the notes, dude, and the highlights. And I'm like, man, you got to be kidding me. So kudos to you, you know. Um, My question to you is with with this trajectory of, like, create, let the world judge it, you know, you you probably didn't know that this book was going to be the one. Talk to us about your relationship with that book and why it's not your favorite. I gotta hear this, man. Yeah, I have a, a very interesting relationship with Chopwood Carry Water. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily my least favorite. I, I put that on there because it, it, a lot of times I get people that you know will send me a, a direct message or you know some sort of a message on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, or send me a, a text because my number is in the back of a lot of the books and they'll say, man, I read your book and I loved it. And I'm like, I've written a lot of books. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and so it is, it is an awesome book. It did kind of what I wanted it to do. Originally why I wrote that book was because IMG Academy had reached out to me and asked me to head up mental conditioning and leadership and if I had taken that position, I would have been an employee and anything that I created would have been their work product. It wouldn't have been my intellectual property, it would have been theirs. And so I didn't leave bed for about six weeks and I just wrote. And um, I don't want to dramatize that. I, I, would, I would get up occasionally for food, I would use the restroom, um, but that's basically it. I was basically in bed for about 23 hours a day writing on my phone. I, I write books on my phone, I, I can't write on a computer. I'll edit on a computer sometimes, but I, I'm, most of the way that I write is in notes on my phone. And wow. so I, I just, I wrote for six weeks and um, that became the first edition of Chopwood Carry Water. Then there's, you know, it's now I think on the fifth edition, I've, I've molded it and shaped it over a couple of years. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, so the reason why I, I wrote that book and then I wrote Hustle right after that, which is my kind of entrepreneurial journey and a lot of my life journey. And I, I had wrote Chopwood Care Water because as I looked around the field of sports psychology, mental training, there was no consensus go-to book. So, you know, if you played baseball, 
you have Mind Gym, which you know connects with a lot of those guys. Uh, there were you know the inner game of tennis, the inner mm-hmm. game of golf, but there was no book that if you ask sports psychologists or people in mental training that they would say there's this one book you gotta read. Yeah, and so I kind of took that upon my shoulders is like. I'm gonna try and write the go-to book in sports psychology. Originally, it was called Start Here, Mental Training, Finally Made Simple. It had a 45-page fable that was chopped wood, carry water. Inside of that, I sent it to John Gordon. He said, man, throw the rest of this stuff out, build out that fable. That fable is what it is. That fable is supposed to be the book. And I was like, man, I don't write fables. You write fables. I write you know, <laughs> tra- you know, traditional books. Yeah. And then he just kept beating on me and kept beating on me. and. And, and finally I did that. And then once I started sharing it with people, I, I had a feeling that it was gonna be pretty special because the reaction to it was, um, was very intense. And it's not that I don't love the book, it's that Chop Wood Carry Water is a starting point. Mm. It, it's, it's not meant to be a one-off product. It is one of seven books and it was the fourth book I think that I wrote and so if you pull that book out and you don't take the whole body of work then there's a lot of misconceptions I believe that 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 don't really um, get filled in there's there, people take it and, and it gets used in a lot of ways that I'm not comfortable with because people have only read that and they haven't read burn your goals i mean i came out of the gate punching everybody in the face with yeah. burn your goals yeah man. john john gordon told me i remember sitting with him in santa monica and his family and he said uh you can write about burning your goals do not title this book burn your goals <laughs> he goes nobody's gonna read it yeah. nobody's gonna buy it like yeah everybody talks about goal setting and i was mm-hmm. like listen i i love you but this is what I gotta do. I'm, I'm tired of the, the BS that's out there with goals and goal setting. And so um, so I came out of the gate with, with Burn Your Goals. And then the second book was called An Impractical Guide to Becoming a Transformational Leader. And so if you don't kind of take some of that body of work and that mm-hmm. foundation, um, it's tough. And then Pound the Stone is my favorite book, which I wrote kind of in response to Chop Wood Carry Water that really dives so much deeper into her posture mm-hmm. and you know and really dealing with identity and, and things like that. And so and then now we're gonna uh, write a book that's gonna be a sequel to uh, an actual sequel to Chop Wood Carry Water where uh, Akira Sensei is is on his deathbed and um, and he's actually going to talk about some of the ways that chop wood gets used that he doesn't agree with, and that it's getting used in ways that kind of um, a lot of overachievers, especially that are in leadership positions, love to take that book mm-hmm. and beat people over the head with it. Mm. Uh, this is what you need to be doing. This is, and it's like, man, have you read? We changed the title to Transformational Leadership, but like, have you read that book? Because if you read that book, then you would know how to actually use this in ways that are beneficial and constructive. But a lot of times, you know, you make a tool and you can't control how that tool gets used. 
Um, and I think that some people have taken that tool that can be helpful, mm -hmm. um, and they've used it in ways that, are, that, that can be destructive for other humans. And so, yeah, it's this really interesting relationship. Even whenever Chopwood started to go viral, mm -hmm. um, all of a sudden, I started to, over the next couple of years, I started to kind of spiral internally with a lot of mental health stuff that I had yeah. struggled with my whole life. And you know, my, my, I pulled my baby brother out of the pool whenever I was nine years old. He drowned, ended up passing away 30 days later. I lost two coaches to prison. I lost my, my dad to cancer whenever I was 21. And so I've struggled with suicidal ideation. I've struggled with manic depression. Uh, I found out at 33 that I was on the autism spectrum. And so I, I've had all of these things that, that I was dealing with, and all of a sudden, Chopwood goes viral. It's a self-published book. Yeah. I don't need to work for the rest of my life, and I'm gonna be able to live financially, comfortably, and all of a sudden, all these new challenges come into my life. Yeah. Because I'm great at, you know, my memoir is called Hustle. The, the people at the top of the mountain don't, didn't fall there. Mm -hmm. I'm great at climbing mountains. You put a mountain in front of me, and I will kick, claw, scratch my way to the top of that mountain. But when I actually, all of a sudden, just was able to sit still, yeah, and it was like, oh shit, uh, <laughs> I got a lot of stuff that I got to deal with, and that's really hard. So yeah, so I have this very um, kind of love hate and a lot of other emotions um with that book well I, I appreciate you sharing that because i think behind every there behind every man there's a story you know what i'm saying um and and that, i appreciate you sharing that because there's a lot that went in you know to your literary career before chop wood carry water everybody talks about psalm 23 right oh the lord is my shepherd but we yeah. forget that there were 22 other psalms that yeah. were that were in the works that were transformational before yeah. we got to Psalm 23. And yeah. so I really appreciate that insight. And it, this segues perfectly because, you know, right now we hear this word performance a lot. Right. My company yeah. is called All Things Performance. We have elite performance mini camps here. We got performance <laughs> here, performance golf training here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Performance. Performance yeah. is, is it's thrown around. It's diluted. And when you look at it's uh you know the definition it's the execution of a task or a function right whether that's a, a human being whether that is an animal how an animal is is performing whether it's whether it's a piece of machinery right what are your insights in terms of, you've worked with a lot of athletes you work with a lot of business people um you've worked with many individuals when it comes to peak performance being your best self what would you say are some bullet point items that individuals need to have, and maybe some bullet point items, if you will, that they need to get rid of? That's a good question. The first thing I'll say is, uh, you, you, you talked about Psalm 23, my favorite one along those lines is Jeremiah 29, 11, which everybody loves to quote, you know, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, for, you know, plans for a prosper and future and hope and all of that, and, and they skip right over the very, First right before that says after yeah. 70 years in the desert. Oh my god. After gosh. 70 years in the desert, then I have that. And um, so 
yeah, we, we, we struggle with patience, we struggle with timing, we struggle with uh, wanting to, to play many gods in our own life, and especially if we uh, live in a Western uh, culture where we tend to read and view the Bible through our Western lens and mm -hmm. not through the lens that I think that it's actually meant to be viewed through. When it comes to performance, performance is another one that I kind of have a, a very interesting relationship with because there's so many things that we can do to impact performance and to get closer to um, you know peak performance. The issue is that if that's what our focus is, it can cause a lot of identity issues that mask what's really going on at a, at a heart level, yep. at a level of like, what's gonna matter on my deathbed? And on my deathbed, um, you know, I, I had the privilege of working with Anson Dorrance, who was it, it, probably the greatest performing coach of all time. You know, yep. I, I, think, I think he's at 22 national championships that he's won coaching UNC women's soccer. And um, and I asked a question to him in, in, a, in a group setting one time uh, that is, you know, on your deathbed, what do you want to be remembered for? Mm -hmm. And I looked over at him and I was like, do you want to be remembered for winning 22 national championships? And he's like, no. And so it's this it's this weird thing that like i think a lot of times when we when we break down performance to its essence we've started to believe this lie that we're actually a human doing and we're not a human being and what, I, and what i mean by that is that we believe that if we're able to perform that it will somehow give us this transformation of being that somehow will be worthy of love, will be worthy of attention, will be worthy of, uh, will be enough. That if I could just get to this place, then finally I'll be enough. Um, the, I'll probably get a little emotional and I apologize, but. No, um, don't apologize. I saw Simone Biles quote the other day, and she said, you know, I, I'm really grateful for the outpouring of love and support that I've received because up until this point in my life, I felt like, basically, I, I don't want to mix up her words and I'm probably going to get it a little bit wrong, but basically that my entire worth was wrapped up in gymnastics and that I had to perform to be loved. Yes. And I just don't believe that that's the way that life was actually intended to be. That then we just become these robots. And there's a lot of people out there, there's a lot of people that know a ton more than I know about performance. And, and, and they oftentimes try and turn human beings into these performance robots. And I don't know, I, I just I just question like, and again, based off of my experience 
with losing my baby brother at nine and losing my dad at 21, like, at the end of our life, like, what is really going to matter? And is winning a, a Super Bowl or winning a, uh, a gold medal? I mean, Naira Fields is like my little sister. She played at UCLA whenever I was the director of mental training there for women's basketball, and she played for Team Canada. And the big deal with Team Canada in basketball is beating the United States, right? Like yeah, the United States is the juggernaut. And so m multiple times uh, while I was there with her, they came in second. And she would always come back and she would be so frustrated and so upset. And, and I was like, my, winning gold is not gonna do anything for you. Whatever you think it's gonna do, it can't do. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis has a quote that's something along the lines of, you can never get enough of what you don't truly need. Mm. And, and so I, it was either a junior or a senior year, she came back from summer and they won gold. And I was like, so what's up? <laughs> and she was like, you were right. You're right. <laughs> and I was like, I know. Michael Phelps struggled with suicidal ideation after mm -hmm. winning more gold medals than anybody else. Yeah. You see so many times, like, we just believe this lie that if I can just get somewhere higher on this performance ladder, that once I get there, things will be different. Yeah. But then we just keep moving the needle. And we, I mean, we keep moving the, the goalposts. We just keep moving the goalposts further and further because we get there and then we're like, oh, well, maybe it's somewhere further up. Like it's got to, like mm -hmm. somewhere, once I get there, then I'll feel like I'm enough. Then I'll feel like, and, and so we kind of become these performance addicts. And, you know, I know where mine comes from. It comes from having a father where nothing was ever good enough. And so, sure, I'm, I'm really good at performance. I really struggle with being a human being and believing that I'm enough. Yeah. And it just, the more that we perform, the more that we feel like we have to perform or else, like Simone said, then what am I if that thing is gone? And so that, you know, the thing I always love to, to ask people, you know, what, what would happen? Who would you be if that thing that you do was taken away from you? Yeah. Who are you then? And a lot of times that it, it completely disrupts people's life. I mean, they have an identity crisis. They, that's whenever all, you know, the shit hits the fan because it's easy when you can just go out and do, 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 do. And some of us are just wired better for performance. But what happens when you go out and you actually get to the top or what you thought was the top and then it isn't enough and you still feel the exact same way? Or what if you feel worse because you believe that lie that if I could get somewhere higher on the ladder, it would change things? But it can't because it's just that's more of like a, a, a transformation of, of circumstances. It's not actually a transformation of being. And until we have more of that transformation of being, um, 
which is what I think we really want, but I don't think that that can actually come through performance. Yeah. No, I, I love I love your your take on this. A human being versus a human doing, and you know you've worked with tons of athletes. So many athletes get caught up right in what they do as opposed to who they are. And you talked about you know the the things in your heart that you had to deal with, and and this kind of perfectly leads into you know the last few questions here um, that I had for you. I mean, we're, we're in an Olympic year, you know, and yeah. you you already you know. Uh, talked about Simone Biles and there is this spotlight on mental health, mental toughness, mental skills, mm -hmm. the mind more so than we've ever seen uh, in the course of human history. And in terms of your contributions and insights, you've, you've done a tremendous job in explaining and walking us through, you know, um, some of these elements. I believe, you know, when you start looking at psychology, right? Um, the science of the mind, the study of the mind, in my opinion, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Some of the greatest contributions, their contributors to psychology are not even psychologists, man. You know what I mean? You start looking at people like Mother Teresa. You look at somebody as controversial as Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson. Yeah, I said it. Mike Tyson. <laughs> you start looking at, you know, business people like, you know, Peter Drucker. And how what he how he looked at the mind, Malcolm Gladwell, the yeah. work that you're doing, Joshua Medcalf, the work that you are doing that's literally impacting people across the world. Mm -hmm. And and my my question to you is for the for these deeper insights, right? For these deeper insights, where should be where should we look, right? If I need help, if I if I am an athlete and I'm looking for the answer, and you know. Those that are blessed to work with you, it's it's awesome. But if, if I'm a, if I'm listening to this today, and I need help, and I want to know the truth, and I want to um, be a better person, I want to be a human being, but I still want to be a high level performer. Where is the first place that I look? Because I have so many options. I have so many people telling me to do this. I have people telling me to calm down and to breathe. I have people telling me to be stoic and to be neutral. Don't show any emotion, right? Yeah. I have people telling me, you gotta be hype. You gotta go into yeah. What, what is the answer, dude? Where should we look for insights? Yeah, I mean, I think we both have kind of already alluded to this. Um, I think the, the, the foundational answer will always be Jesus. And I think that outside of that, um, it's a lot of stuff that's not gonna really hold weight. Um, and that's, that's challenging. I've had a lot of people that have kind of come to me and they're like, well, you know, they're like, well, how can you say that your value comes from who you are and not from what you do? And I'm like, well, the only way that statement can be true is if the person that created you made you in his image and loves you unconditionally and gave his life for you. That's the only way that statement can actually be true. Um, but to kind of you know go back to the uh, Olympic year that we're in, there's a there's a couple of things that I find interesting. Number one, um, the way the media wrote about Simone Biles' uh, struggles was, and I 
I try and be really intentional with my words. Um, and this is a heavy statement, but it is complete fucking bullshit. Because the way everybody put it is that she's dealing with mental health and this is mental health, and this is, and, and so then all of a sudden, I, I was just in North Carolina yesterday, and was playing golf with uh, a buddy that has coached at really high levels. His wife um, is one of the best female golfers of all time. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know, he was like, when I first heard that, my gut reaction was, whoa, she's being soft. And he said, but then I found out that she was struggling with this thing. I think it's called twisties where yes. she gets caught up in the air and she doesn't know where she's at. And that's not fucking mental health. Yeah. Like that is life or death. She could kill herself. She could be paralyzed. It's not mental health. She's not dealing with anxiety. She's not dealing with suicidal ideation. Like it's mm. not mental health. And the media has a responsibility to articulate things in a way that uh, is accurate. And to call that mental health, that's not mental health. What Kevin Love is, was going through in battles, that's called mental health. Mm -hmm. If you get twisties, that is, that's something completely different that needs to, you know, we need to operate with linguistic intentionality. Words matter. There's power of life and death in the tongue. Like, words matter. So, it, it, there's a responsibility to articulate something in a way that actually is factually accurate. Like, facts actually matter in this world. And there's some people that have, you know, kind of come up with this thing of, you know, you got to speak your truth. No, like there is capital T truth. There are facts. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, like there are some things that are black and white. And, mm -hmm. and so there's a responsibility there. That's not mental health. That's something completely different. And they try to portray her in a very negative light uh, as if she was being soft and that's not the case at all if you get the gips in golf yep. which happens all the time if you get the gips in baseball you've worked baseball, with people yeah. in baseball um, you can keep working through that you can keep trying but it's real we've seen it happen all the time mm -hmm. but you're not going to break your neck from the yips in golf you're not going to break your neck from because you can't throw a baseball in the strike zone anymore but in gymnastics, like you can, you can kill yourself. And that's just, so that's one thing. Um, on, an, on another note about the Olympics, one thing that's so fascinating, like we oftentimes, again, we think that life is about, uh, you know, circumstances and like where we're at, but so much of life has nothing to do with where we're at and has everything to do with perspective. Mm -hmm. And so, there was a study that showed that, you know, the people that win the gold usually are the most excited and happy. But then the, the most fascinating thing is that you would think that it would just go gold, silver, bronze, but that's not at all how it works because silver's perspective is looking up and going, I was this close yeah. to being a world champion. I was this close to winning. Whereas bronze is like, whew. I made it on the podium. <laughs> like, yeah. I could have been down there. I could have not podium. I could have not made it here. And so much of, of life is not actually about where we're at. It's about where we're looking and where our perspective is. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's one of the other big things I think 
with um, you know the Olympics is the more that you kind of you know if you do go to performance like the more that you focus on I have to do this like this you know the more that you try and squeeze like mm -hmm. it's like water like yeah try and hold water by squeezing it in your hand tell me how that works yeah. like it's this very very delicate process of like I gotta hold this very lightly I need to have a heart posture of gratitude for actually being here, but not just being here, like a heart posture of gratitude that my body works. Mm -hmm. Like, why do we have to break our leg to remember we get to practice? That we get to move, that we get to use our arms and legs? Yes. Why do we have to get in a, in a car wreck and become paralyzed to be like, whoa, I was missing this whole thing. Yeah. That I, I had the opportunity to go out and play. Mm -hmm. I had the opportunity to go out and do what I do. And then lastly, you talked about mental toughness and, and you know my thoughts on this. I think that there's so much misinformation around mental toughness and so many people define mental toughness as you know, the ability to play through a, a broken leg or this guy won an Olympic gold in wrestling with a broken neck. Um, Again, I, I kind of call BS on some of that stuff. And the way that we define true mental toughness and the way I kind of coined it is having a great attitude, giving your very, very best, treating people really, really well, having unconditional gratitude regardless of your circumstances or another way, even when your circumstances suck. Because if I focus on that, which is 100% controllable, 100% controllable, then all of a sudden, whatever circumstances I find myself in, that becomes a character-refining experience for me. Also, as John Wooden said, the guy that won more you know, basketball national championships than anyone else, I've never met someone that's described for me or told me what they can do better than they're giving their best. There's just certain things that are outside of our control. So rather than focusing on you know, these goals and these outcomes that are outside of our control, what if we just operate with this heart posture of gratitude, we surrender the outcome, we surrender the stuff that's outside of our control, and we actually focus on the stuff that's inside of our control. Because if we have a great attitude, give our very, very best, treat people really, really well, have unconditional gratitude, like, that is such a high standard. It's not like we're lowering the bar. We're actually raising the bar, but we're doing it in ways that are controllable versus doing it around stuff that we have no control over. So if I focus on these outcomes, these arbitrary-based outcomes that I have no control over, I'm going to make myself miserable and I'll make everybody else miserable in the process. Yeah. Instead of, what do I have control over? Who? So who doesn't want somebody on their team? that embodies the characteristics of true mental toughness, whether that's a spouse, whether that's a friend, whether that's a colleague, whether that's uh, your boss, whether that's a coach. Everybody wants people on their team that embody those characteristics. So what if instead of focusing on these arbitrary outcome-based goals that we can't control, we just focus on true mental toughness? Because then all of a sudden, no matter where I end up, no matter what I place, no matter if I finish dead last or if I finish first, then 
I have used my sport or the thing that I do to become more the type of person that I want to become because otherwise sports are a zero-sum game. But if I am intentional about focusing on what truly matters instead of what doesn't matter and won't matter on my deathbed, then all of a sudden I'm in a position that I actually want to be in. Yeah. No, that's good, man. It's a, it's a different take on it, you know, um, for sure. You know, it, it's one of those things where, you, like you said, man, many people define mental toughness different ways, but any definition that you look at, um, there's always this presence of a stressor. There's always a pres- this presence of um, adversity that one must overcome to become mentally tough. And, and uh, what you've just shared with us is, is huge because these are things that you can do regardless of what domain you practice or that you're in or pr- profession or whatever. Uh, and ultimately just helps us become better people, all right? And we, I, I would definitely want people like that on my team. Right. And so, no, that's awesome. As we, again, Joshua, I th- thank you so much, man, for taking the time. I have one last question for you, and this is something that is a, uh, that lines your work, man, and you talk about it a lot. You actually alluded to it today here uh, more than once. Uh, you know, I've heard it once said that it's hard to be grateful, right, and thankful and be mad at the same time, right? It's hard to be thankful for something, to be grateful for something, and then be mad or angry at the same time. And you always talk about this, uh, a heart posture mm-hmm. of gratitude. You, you talk about that incessantly through your work. Yeah. And what I want to do today is, as we close, I want you to share with us what that means, having a heart posture of gratitude. And I also want you to share with us how we can do that. What are the the steps, you know, if it's an ABC or one, two, three, just share that with us today. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the, uh, I'll never forget, I was uh, listening to David Roos speak one time in in LA and and when he said that word, heart posture, I was like, yo, that's it. Like, (laughs) that's, that's the missing thing because so many times we focus on the external behaviors but we've all met people that they can do all the right things, they can say all the right things, but you can just feel that their heart posture isn't authentic, that it's Mm -hmm. not actually a heart posture, it's a strategy. Mm -hmm. And until you actually have an authentic heart posture shift and not just try and pick up a new strategy to perform, Mm-hmm. It, it's never really going to happen. Um, I think that there's a lot of different things that can impact that heart posture. Sadly, most of the time it comes through incredible adversity, whether it's the, like I said, you break your leg and all of a sudden you hated going to practice. You hated working out. You just wanted to perform. You just wanted to play games and then you break your leg and it's like oh man like i would give anything to be back out there and then that you know that first couple of weeks it's like man i I can (laughs) i can run again i can walk again i can like Mm -hmm. it creates that heart posture for you and so you know one of the things that that i've tried to incorporate as much as possible in my life not as good about it as I used to be, but I just call it gratefulness, prayer, and meditation. 
And mm -hmm. so the way I used to start almost every single day is I'd sit down in the shower and I would just thank God for all the little things in my life, clean drinking water, uh, the ability to walk, talk, feed myself, three things that my brother that has cerebral palsy can't do. Um, you know, all these little things, if something on my body hurts, I would actually thank God for that thing because 99% of the time that thing works flawlessly and I never think about it. And so rather than having this heart posture of, um, you know, treating God kind of like a genie of like, God, give me this. I want this. I need this. Please help me to, you know, be blessed. Please help me to win. Please help me to blah, 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 blah. Um, mm -hmm. Just thanking God and creating that time and space and orienting my heart around this posture of, of gratitude for whatever it is that's going on in my life instead of again playing this mini god trying to control everything thinking that i know better when most of the time i've i've got a pea brain I'm, I'm like a little kid that wants dessert before dinner and i don't know what's best for my life i, I never will what i want and what i need it's a it's a crapshoot um and i think it always will be so my job isn't to know that, understand that, it's to try and orient my heart around, thank you for what I have, thank you for this opportunity, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for breath, thank you for life, um, and just doing that more and more. I mean, maybe it comes down to, uh, you know, why some people don't like my stuff is because it's messy, and I'm never going to give people a, a formula. I don't think there is a formula. If there was a formula, I think Jesus would have given it to us in the New Testament. It's why a lot of the Pharisees didn't like Jesus, because they liked the Old Testament. They liked the Ten Commandments. They liked the formulas. And Jesus came in and said, hey, guess what? Surprise! I gave y'all like 6,000 years, and nobody got it right. So... Um, we're gonna go with this new strategy, which is uh, we're gonna throw out that entire old covenant and it's all gonna depend on uh, my life and what I've done yeah. and yeah. you trusting me and you surrendering to me. And we don't like that because it's messy. We don't understand love and grace. We, we want it to fit into our nice, neat little boxes Mm -hmm. And in my opinion, that's just not how life actually works. And so, yeah, I, I don't think there's a formula you can, you know, you can write out, you know, in the morning, 10 things you're grateful for. There's lots of different ways of, of, of trying to orient your heart posture uh, around gratitude instead of performance, instead of um, control. Um, but ultimately it's, I think, just in whatever way it is that you best do that for yourself, figuring out, okay, what actually is my heart posture around this? And most of the time, I, I think it was also Jeremiah in the Bible that said, you know, the heart is desperately wicked, who could know it? Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's constantly trying to go back to, okay, how can I create time and space to uh, have more of this heart posture of gratitude. 
Yeah, that's, that's, that's good. I mean, stuff starts getting real when you start becoming real and looking yourself in the mirror. And, you know, like you just said, you know, when we start figuring out, hey, what is my heart posture? Yeah. I, I love what you said earlier about, hey, if it's not right, if you don't have the correct heart posture, we start you can start to sniff that out real quick and not only ourselves but in others because it becomes strategy like what does this person want what do you want you know I'm like no I'm just being real I'm just being me oh okay oh yeah and you know how it is you know our brains are taking in so much information even on a subconscious level that we can figure out real quick if somebody is just trying to strategize or somebody really truly loves and somebody truly cares so Um, man, I, I thank you so much for your time, Joshua. This was awesome. I'm, I need to go back and listen to some of this stuff again. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it made me want to. It made me want to pause at moments and just say, "Man, I need to reflect on this myself." It made me. It, it pissed me off in other moments in terms of some of the things that I'm passionate about and, and some of the things that you shared in terms of you know current events. And it's just at the end of the day, man. There's just there's so much. Uh, there was so much insight that you shared. And so we just want to say thank you again, man. God well, bless well, you, brother. Don't get it twisted because I just told a friend yesterday. I said one of the most convicting things in my life is when I go back and I reread the stuff that I've written. It's easy to yeah. write about it. It's easy for me to talk about it. Um, I'm gifted at that. It's really, really hard for me to live it on a daily basis. So I'm right there with you, man. Yeah, no, that's real, man. And I, and I appreciate and, and the fact that you admitted that makes what you shared today and who you are as a person even that much more authentic, man. And so I, I say thank you, brother. Thank you for having me.